Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. Legacy Russell is a writer, artist and current associate curator of exhibitions at the Studio Museum in Harlem. In her 2020 book, Glitch Feminism Manifesto, she proposes a set of practices that transcend categories of gender, race and identity by negating their predetermined functions in the intersection of the digital and the physical. In the following conversation, Legacy Russell elaborates on the ideas expressed in Glitch Feminism, including the racialized construction of gender, the real-life digital world dichotomy, and gives us a glimpse into her upcoming book, Black Meme. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I am Yann Soresua Dimitriou, recording and editing by Stefan Sustadinidis. Legacy Russell, welcome to the Archipelago. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start this conversation by asking you for a brief definition of glitz feminism uh, and also how you came up with the concept. Yeah, um, you know, I guess it began in my period of time of doing graduate study. I was going to school at Goldsmiths, um, which was an amazing experience coming from New York and living in London for the first time. And I, you know, felt very much so that the the work and, and some of its early writing came very much from my own community, um, thinking very much so about, um, you know, being both alienated within certain spaces and then uh, spaces as well that were, you know, deeply networked through and beyond the digital that allowed for a different type of conversation and community. So, you know, as well, recognizing myself as a Black 
queer person, thinking very much about the ways in which different types of movement could be possible, um, both on and offline. And, um, you know, seeing as well within a graduate study space and, you know, thinking through the ways in which, um, you know, sort of the production of scholarship through the lens of visual culture and art history, um, often positions queer theory and post-colonial theory, black studies, cyber culture, kind of art and technology in classrooms where, you know, I was one of very few black and queer people. And um, often, you know, it becomes almost unrecognizable, your own lived experience as you're kind of studying these things um, inside of the setting of a, a sort of academic structure. So for me, alongside of my dissertation, I started doing some of this early writing, thinking about um, glitch feminism, you know, in its definition as looking at a way to resist the gender binary by exploring uh, digital as a means of a performative technology, um, you know, and asking questions about the ways in which our online presence and, you know, the kind of creative potential of that could do important work in allowing us to think differently about the body and how it can be redefined. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you take us a little bit more into it? I mean, it was, uh, there was a, there's this idea of error behind the glitch feminism, right? Uh, I mean, when you say viral, no, actually. So um, I, in kind of early stages of writing about it, I very much was thinking about um, questions of uh, sort of presence and precarity, asking about, you know, what it meant to exist away from your screen and um, seeing, you know, kind of through the lens of ongoing change, both at the time when I was in the UK, also, you know, in the course of my growing up um, and down different spaces that, you know, very much so were performative spaces, creative spaces, um, kind of changing form or being sanitized or being closed altogether. And as well, recognizing that much of my early learning about um, performance began, you know, in intersection with nightlife. It did not begin in the art institutions. It did not begin in museums. Um, it began, you know, really out in the world um, and living in, you know, kind of spaces that were participatory and intersectional and super blurry. Um, so, you know, this question of the viral is something that, um, you know, I'm happy to speak to within the kind of context of my second book. Um, that's something that um, is forthcoming from Verso Books and is called Black Meme and is going to look at the uh, kind of history of viral circulation and um, Long, a kind of arc of uh, black identity um, and the circulation of black imagery um, from 1900 to present, but that is a, a separate book from Glitch Feminism. <laughs> and I think we'll return to this uh, later in the in the conversation. Uh, for for now, I'd like to ask you this: uh, Is Glitch Feminism an inversion of how you use, we, we usually perceive our relationship with our digital selves? I mean, I, I, we tend to think like the our digital selves, our avatars, are um, uh, fake identities, or maybe okay, at best they might be some mirror images, but not like the real thing that we are. I don't know if I necessarily agree with you. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about, you know, who the we is that, you know, is making that assumption. I think a whole generation of people have grown up in the age of the internet where very much so, uh, like an online presence 
away from their computers, um, you know, or online presence rather, you know, in terms of how it was negotiating kind of on and offline, um, you know, was all bound up in one another. And so, you know, being online and performing identities under, you know, what is kind of considered the anonymous avatar actually was a really important part of doing some early work of understanding oneself. Um, and I, you know, I totally appreciate what we share online is certainly selective, right? It's curated, it isn't the full arc of life. But I also do think that for many people who kind of have ever felt unsafe in a physical space that, you know, that they, you know, or perhaps have not even been able to exist within the physical as a way that's provided them freedom or movement uh, and a freedom of movement, right? Of community of thought that going online has actually been a really strategic way to survive a kind of mechanism that's been, um, you know, a kind of core component of what it is to be networked in the world and connected to other people. And I also think too, that it's a place where people have been able to do really important creative work, you know, to feel more connected to their authentic selves and perhaps braver, encouraged to step away from the screen and to take up more space. So, you know, the book for me, Guilt Feminism, begins with the personal. It's about, you know, my story in terms of growing up online and, uh, you know, kind of a digital native and in the era of the internet. Um, where some of those things were possible. And, you know, that in itself is a kind of, um, you know, really important turning point in terms of my own growth and sense of awareness. And I know that that's something that's shared across a generation of people. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you propose that there are digital av avatars and AFK selves, uh, that there is a space, or there should be a space, where it could be suspended in one internal case, that that's what uh, what is desirable in the strategy of uh, glitch feminism. Now, how, ca how can we equate, let alone fuse our physical and digital existence? I mean, the goal is to mimic the identities we develop online with all the traits that you just described on our AFK lives, or is the process more complex, you think? So I guess it defines in terms like AFK, meaning away from keyboard. Um, the history of that obviously is rooted within the research of Nathan Jurgensen, who um, in you know kind of early 2012 um, began to do you know deep thinking and has created some incredible scholarship thinking about this question of on versus offline and actually you know noting that the two are not separate, right? That they actually exist within a loop, and it's really important that we hold ourselves accountable to that, um, that we are centering that as a reality. Um, English feminism, the kind of continuation or uh, discourse around digital dualism is looking to think through the ways that artists are using contemporary art to think about the body intersections across race, class, and gender. So the book kind of does this necessary work of asking about how to decolonize gender as a race and class construct. Um, you know, it's intimately about me as I face my community through the digital, but, you know, on and offline selves for many people are deeply entangled. And, you know, to use your news, this, of course, is definitely not a new concept. Like we can think back to Irving Goffman's The Presentation of Self and Everyday Life, right, where, the, you know, the whole book is talking about exactly this and was written in 1956 before the internet as we know it even existed. So the assumption that to perform is to lie is actually a false assumption. And I, I think that, you know, there are examples of course, you know, of deception across things that we are seeing on and offline and, you know, the ways in which those two things relate to each other that, of course, are deeply, um, you know, kind of codependent on this question of deception. However, you know, the 
book Glitch Feminism and the work that it does is um, engaging with performance as a technology of imagination, thinking about it as a way that it can help us shape different futures and kind of test them out, consider new blueprints, um, you know, asking as well about how artists can do that generous work and like really very much so consider that, you know, that artists are helping us as technologists themselves kind of to test out these different possibilities. And so this is why the book lets the artists themselves do the driving you know, thinking about the ways that they show us how to kind of move and to engage with some of these really important questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this point in the interview, we've actually touched on many different issues that we'll elaborate on down the line. But for now, I'd like to ask you this. <laughs> the idea of glitz feminism, uh, is it antagonistic or complementary to other, uh, other variations of feminism? Uh, how does it relate to them? Yeah, I mean, so I I guess I take issue maybe with the the language of antagonistic because I'm really not interested in antagonizing anyone. So the language of antagonizes seems sort of counterintuitive to the critical space that glitch feminism seeks to hold. Um, you know, I'm interested in the, the work and and um, kind of scholarship of Audre Lorde, Octavia Butler, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, you know, T. Fleischman, Anais Duplan. Um, these are folks I think who have done really important making intersectional vision of what uh, a sort of network culture, cyber culture, um, feminist culture should look like. Um, and then, well, recognizing that, you know, queer and Black artists are, you know, in their own right, thinking through the ways in which feminism should be applied, you know, thinking about the work of E. Jane or um, Mark Aguar, or as well, Shawnee Michelaine Holloway. These are folks within Glitch Feminism that, you know, are, are uh, kind of their, their work is celebrated and and very much, you know, kind of pushes the thesis of the book, thinking very much through their practice and the incredible contributions that they've made um, as this generation of folks who've kind of done work on the internet, had their work, you know, with a strong digital presence um, and, you know, engaged questions of feminism and intersection with queerness. Mm-hmm. Now let, let's go back to the what we, what we usually call the the golden age of the of the internet, uh, which is also the where your uh, your story the the first person part of your book uh, starts, uh, which is in the 1990s and early 2000s, right? I mean I'm taking this as a you know <laughs> as a whole. No, I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I'm not putting you in any particular point there, but uh, so the they are often thought back as a time of digital innocence they're even um, and we even think of them as harboring uh, radical potentialities that we are still exploring yet one mm. thing that amazed me in the book is that you don't seem to agree to that one-sided positive view you uh, you actually mentioned a lot of things about how there was a, a certain whiteness to this uh, early uh, cyber uh, feminist radicalism um, uh, so why was race marginalized in early cyber radicalism and how were black voices overshadowed Mm-hmm. I mean, we can say that, of course, the 1990s and, and early aughts were by no means innocent, right? Um, I, I'm thinking about like Julian Dibble, who first published in The Village Voice, I think it was in 1993, the essay, A Rape in Cyberspace, which really kind of the nascent beginnings of looking at how these spaces are deeply gendered, racialized, and, and continue to be, right? So this is like a long and complicated history, but I think that, you know, that essay was significant in that moment for a wide variety of reasons. 
questions because it engaged questions of, um, you know, as you noted before, and, um, and the ways in which that, you know, aspects of uh, a kind of uh, sort of networked culture could uh, work against, um, you know, and kind of breaking away from our understanding of what is safe space. Um, but, you know, thinking through the, the ways in which safe space, I think, and as well, um, kind of critical space, radical space, to use your word, um, you know, kind of was positioned um, through that moment and the way that we look back at that moment. Um, you know, Good Feminism as a text really isn't looking to absolve the early days of cyberspace, you know, nor to support really any notion of utopia as we think about the digital, because that's really not what this work is about. It's instead kind of thinking about the fact that cyberfeminism and its history perpetuated many of the same errors that AFK feminism movements did, right? These early movements that kind of held up um, a presence of a kind of uh, sort of white feminism as being, uh, and white women therein as being the speakers of progress, you know, really made them, in the case of cyberfeminism, the face of an online presence of uh, a kind of uh, culture and cyberculture, um, and the theory within it as being kind of core drivers and producers of it as it entered into an academic space. So we see everything from, you know, Donna Haraway to Faith Wilding to Cornelia Solfrank and Catherine Hales. These are all people who've been incredibly important um, in their contributions, right? But story that is, you know, really focused on on uh, their work and as well their faces, right? It makes them um, visible and known. Um, then, of course, there are artists like, um, you know, Olia, Leah, Lena, um, and as well, you know, the, who kind of rose out of this tradition and artists maybe like Amalia Ullman. And again, this work, um, you know, it's not to say it hasn't been valuable in its power and presence. Um, you know, it's intersected with the kind of uh, discussions about a Western network culture, questions of privilege and creative practice. Um, but it's really just to consider that the celebration of the cyborg and the way in which it has manifested has actually at points had anti-blackness bound up within it. And that, you know, the cyborg itself is deeply raced and classed and gendered and Haraway years after her original manifesto finally took more time to recognize that which was super important but you know I've been working in the arts for over a decade and I've sat on so many symposiums about art and technology where the room has been filled with non-black people where there are so many white and straight and cisgendered people dictating the scholarship and methodology and art historical roots of cyber culture so for all the times that you know I've sat there and listened to people talk about Donna Haraway or William Gibson <laughs> it's like only now within the context of this current moment that you know folks Folks like Octavia Butler are, you know, in a kind of a high public view and, you know, that people are finally making, um, you know, some of those discussions, um, you know, feel more intersectional and aware predecessors are of, um, you know, what a kind of digital imaginary could be kind of contributors, you know, of blackness and queerness across that arc. Um, so, you know, the emancipatory idea of the internet, you know, violations as well within that, right, to go back to Dibble's essay, um, something that really uh, was afforded to just in the narrative arc of the digital forum by white women um, and moments where it felt audacious, you know, to kind of um, 
think through moments of trespass or deception. I, I you know, I truly believe that, that um, you know, that was something that was bolstered by the fact that white women were um, the subjects of that potential harm. So, you know, when we think about uh, the kind of questions of progress therein, I, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that progress is even the right word for it, but I do feel like that what's been important is seeing a rise of a kind of very much so, um, you know, deeply entrenched, committed, rigorous, um, you know, scholastic, enthusiastic, bombastic culture of Black and queer thinkers who are, you know, both within and outside of an academic um, system, um, who are, you know, driving a kind of creative culture and, um, you know, thinking more deeply about the ways in which um, digital space can um, make their work visible and known, and as well do that work for one another.
actually this uh, this um, uh, this process you're describing kind of reminds me of a pattern that there are many thinkers that have expressed that have talked about it in many different ways uh, where it, it it is a part of the conversation on uh, of the discourse on uh, between race and technology um, and you have this idea that uh, you have a, a history of uh, blackness being de- deprived of technological innovation and then technology being reappropriated to open up radical black po- possibilities hey potentialities I'm sorry uh, so do you see this uh, this idea that you propose following this uh, this motif I have to say I, I, again maybe I'm not convinced that blackness um, has been deprived of technological innovation um, you know within a lot of my work I often talk about blackness as a technology that these technologies have been driven by black creativity you know corporate or otherwise um, you know many of the things that are existing um, on the internet have been shaped by black culture have been very much so driven by a kind of queer vernacular and presence too um, so you know just because a straight white imagination and bias has dictated so much of how technology has been built doesn't mean that black people or queer people have not been able to access or engage or participate in technological advancement that just isn't real to me um, and so it's important for me i guess that we separate out the narrative of the sort of supremacy and oppression uh, of algorithms for example right like what sophia umoja noble writes about or what um rua benjamin wrote, writes about from the assumption that you know that being distinct from the assumption that you know in your words that you know blackness is deprived from technological innovation these to me you know feel like two really separate things Um, and when we blur them, I think it really illustrates the problems of the present moment. The fact that people are assuming that because certain technologies disproportionately exclude or maybe were not built to recognize and support blackness and queerness, that black and queer space is therefore somehow primitive or has arrived late to technology. It's quite the opposite. What we learn from black and queer culture is innovation. It's the capacity to kind of build and rework and remix and advance and the whole notion of viral culture to kind of um, circle back to um you know, one of your early questions um, is, you know, very much so a key driver of the digital space and to the capital within it would not even exist without black people. And that is what my next book is about. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, we can I can actually ask you this about your uh, no before I go to your next book I'd like to ask you this thing this this uh, idea of remix as it's described in glitz uh, uh, feminism along with some other uh, you know core concepts uh, made me recall uh, Mackenzie Wark's uh, Hacker Manifesto which belongs to a, to a different time maybe um, uh, but do you think your work is uh, is building on hers and uh, if so uh, what other texts and ideas uh, do you recognize as predecessors to glitz feminism mm. I mean I had read so much of Mackenzie's work um you know kind of in my early studies and she's always been someone who's been like a real idol of mine um but I actually had never read her hacker manifesto um specifically uh, when I began writing on glitch feminism and so the thing that you know is really interesting is that my predecessors are actually kind of contemporaries um as I cite them within the book themselves are Mark Aguilar or E. Jane's Nope manifesto um you know thinking as well about predecessors Assessors like Essex Hempel, Octavia Butler, Audre Lorde. Um, these were folks who, as I read their work and engaged with their creative practices, um, you know, very much felt like that uh, they embodied this language of the glitch, the question of it, um, the challenges within it, the emancipatory 
potential of it. Um, and then, you know, when I finally sat down actually and read Mackenzie's manifesto, for me, it was um, really special um, and intimate and remarkable because, you know, in many ways, one of the things that really struck me was that glitch feminism and the hacker manifesto do really heavy labor of citation. So, um, you know, centering the thought of others and bringing disparate modes of kind of study and thought and creativity kind of unexpectedly into conversation with one another, like folks who, you know, traditionally might not sit at the same table, you know, sharing space and time um, across generations, across uh, kind of sonic capacity, poetic capacity, um, academic uh, research. Um, so this for me feels really uniquely queer as a kind of shared language. And, um, you know, that was really encouraging to me. It, it was something that was a, a kind of a great gift and surprise to, to recognize that Mackenzie had done that work and um, you know the, the sheer way in which um, she was kind of thinking about bringing into contact these different types of thought um, you know in itself has you know so much of a radical potential. So you know the, the text itself as you know Mackenzie looks back on it because Mackenzie was actually an early reader of glitch feminism um, and you know she's been someone who's been a real um, friend and mentor um, over these years. But, you know, thinking very much about um, the arc of that text, the way that it has grown and changed and expanded and the new perspectives that, you know, each generation brings to it um, has been really exciting, I think, to see um, and to follow along. And so, you know, my hope is for glitch feminism that, you know, it can be something that um, expands and changes and, and deepens, right? Um, you know, engages in different textures over time. Um, and, you know, that is something too that I you know look forward to thinking about this question of um, you know predecessors um, and who to kind of um, situate within that. Now uh, I have this suspicion that my next question is going to be asking you to bridge uh, the glitch feminism with your next book. But uh, okay, so I want to ask this: uh, as a as a visual language of the internet, meme culture might be the first practice that acquainted us with uh, you know erroneous visual cues. Um, mm -hmm. I know its manifestations are diverse, but what do you consider? But do you consider parts of meme culture uh, as predecessors to your ideas of glitch feminism? I actually don't. Um, so, you know, obviously meme culture exists, has existed, will continue to exist, but um, the book is not about memes. So, I, I, you know, it's not something that's been a, a driving force for, you know, what it has been about. Um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm in the process of writing my second book. Um, I just won an award from Creative Capital for that. Um, so it's been a, a kind of, uh, you know, incredible start to the year as I'm kind of navigating what it feels like to start the second book when I feel like I barely finished this, you know, first one. Um, it's barely off the door. But, you know, I think that at the end of the day, what has been, um, you know, useful to be thinking about is uh, this question of error, right? And that, like, you know, across the, the sort of idea of the meme um, as a creative material, that um, memes create important errors and uh, disruptions, interventions um, in different types of discourse, right? And we're seeing that, you know, become more and more visible and possible across political discourse, um, you know, in, in addition to it becoming something that I think um, continues to inch into um, a conversation about art history. So, you know, for me, that's really important because, you know, I do feel very much so that the meme is a really important art form. 
um, and, you know, brings up and surfaces a lot of questions about um, different types of economy, circulation, and labor, which I think have yet to be um, fully recognized um, and reconciled. You know, we're still in such an early period of time in the history of that. Um, but also as well, like thinking about these questions of, um, you know, kind of like citation and credit, because, you know, I think um, for Black people and queer people who are, you know, core drivers of um, meme culture and have, you know, been, you know, core in, in kind of the engine of production there, um, you know, what is common and all too common is seeing uh, that work actually be, um, you know, sort of uh, miscited um, or appropriated, um, you know, in a way that actually doesn't do the work in bridging it back to its original creator. And so I do think that, you know, the ongoing discussion about the way to navigate some of the problems of the meme, um, you know, can be supported by this um, question of the glitch, right? And thinking about the ways in which there may be opportunity for a kind of a different type of mode or methodology um, of the material itself um, as we come to a better understanding of how it can work and work creatively. Mm -hmm. no, I'm doing all these questions. I might have repeated a lot of uh, times the word's predecessors, but it's uh, the ideas in Glitz uh, Feminism are so novel that uh, we, I'm, I'm trying to actually, uh, you know, for a reader who is not uh, uh, well, well versed in the in the material that you're a mix to produce it, uh, it's uh, it's one way of identify of you know of identifying with it uh, at first on a or let's say on a primary level. So I want to ask an, uh, another thing about this. There's um, the, the, we have this. This uh, glitz pop music, right? Uh, and we have Sophie, for example, which is a well-known glitz pop artist. Uh, how can we view her through the lens of your work? What she does, what yeah. her artist Sophie is very, um, yeah. Um, Sophie is very special, I would say, um, to me, just like on a personal note, because I actually. Um, you know, when we think about uh, intersections, I actually was listening a lot to Sophie um, in some of my early days of writing about um, and had the the honor of, of writing about her work, um, you know, for Bomb Magazine many, many years ago. But, you know, thinking about um, that practice, I, I think that, you know, there are glitch studies and the aesthetics of the glitch and there is the sonic nature of the glitch, you know, thinking about it, its relationship to, to music and sound. Um, you know, all of these things I think have really important links to one another. And, you know, we can talk about the ways in which um, some of that, you know, allows for uh, a kind of layered experience that is, uh, you know, kind of rhizomatic and um, uniquely queer um, that, you know, presents different possibilities. I think in Sophie's case, the performative um, component of the practice and the work is something that, you know, is deeply entrenched in a kind of um, material of the internet. Sophie's practice and, and, you know, the way in which some of that early work traveled was, you know, done via digital communities, queer communities that were existing on the internet. Um, and then, you know, folks who then came into physical space to see her perform and do um, that work in real time. So, you know, I do feel like there is a really um, special link there. And, you know, when I think about this question of predecessors, as you, um, you know, keep kind of circling back to, of course, like, you know, I'm thinking of like Jose Munoz and Jack Halperstam, I'm thinking of Paul B. Preciado. These are folks who, you know, for me have been um, really formative, um, running alongside of some of these questions of the sonic and the ways in which not only, um, you know, language can be broken and rebuilt um, as as a uniquely queer material, um, as a, a material that, you know, can be, um, 
kind of uh, rework toward a radical or emancipatory potential, but also as well thinking about the ways in which um, that can drive our uh, understanding of sound. Um, and, you know, the sonic nature of um, a kind of queer text also becomes something that, um, you know, is really meaningful to me when I think about glitch feminism, because it is something that is deeply poetic. Um, you know, it is driven by poetry, um, because, you know, that is also part of my background. Um, so, you know, I appreciate Sophie's work because of the fact that it does so much of that, bringing that into the room and allowing for those things to come into contact with one another. I 
Okay, I think I think this was my last predecessor question. I'm not going to use the word the word again for the rest of this interview. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so let's go to this. Glitch feminism is also a call for a kind of guerrilla warfare against the proliferation of big tech and big data in our lives. Uh, why do you pick gender as the primary battleground? Uh, why do you consider gender as the primary battleground for this? Yeah, I mean, I guess this bridges to like you know this other question of. Um, you know, how does the production of gender out of race work? Um, you know, it's used as a weapon to do the violence of reifying race and class. That's really what, you know, the, the trouble is. And, um, you know, we can look at, for example, like Castro Semenya, who is a South African Olympian athlete, you know, a champion. Um, you know, she's been quite literally hunted within her work and denied her right to compete because of the fact that she's deemed not woman enough. So the history of misgendering um, or denying humanity altogether, right, as in not even allowing for the categorization of male or female to be possible for Black people is long and complicated. Um, you know, it goes right back as well to Sojourner Truth's speech of Ain't I a Woman, um, you know, in the 1800s, right? This is thinking about, you know, asking to be recognized as human. The struggles there that are deeply gendered because, you know, the um, notion of a Black body was one that was so deeply um, enmeshed with the understanding of a Black body as being the machine right, of capitalism. So this is why the language of cyborg, to bring that back into focus, is actually really complicated and complex. Um, you know, for me, it feels really emancipatory through one lens, and I've so appreciated the ways in which that has been situated um, optimistically, but then also as well, I think it's super triggering um, on the other side to see, you know, as Black people, queer people, you know, folks who have for so long fought for the right to feel and to live, um, to not be seen as machines, right, to think about what it means to um, navigate some of this, um, you know, and thinking about gender as being racialized and classed um, and the ways in which those things um, do work to support one another. Um, you know, as well, I'm thinking too of Sylvia Winter's essay, you know, Humans Involved, this incredible essay. Uh, when we think again of predecessors, love that word, we'll keep bringing it up. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a classification by the LAPD, um, which was, uh, you know, an essay written in response to the LA riots in 1992. And you know, uh, thinking about the language of no humans involved, literally this was something that was put on reports um, when black people were involved um, in various uh, sort of incidents and, uh, you know, in Los Angeles. And so the idea that, um, you know, gender um, is uh, raced is something that is really important uh, as a part of glitch feminism, to be able to talk about that, to think about what it means that if, you know, we are thinking about, um, you know, to bring in some of the, the work of Tavia Nyong'o, um, a kind of non-binary blackness, right, that a non-binary blackness is doing um, important work in helping us to colonize uh, the construct of, of gender and the construct of race and helping us uh, see differently that, you know, a future um, it, of, uh, you know, what the body can be, right? One that is perhaps more liberated and empowered um, allows for a, a different relationship to categorization and classification that steps away from a white supremacist logic. Mm -hmm. It also sounds like you don't prescribe to this very common notion of gender as, um, uh, let's say, the, the discursive construction of gender as something that's built into a narrative, a narrative that is a social contra construct in a, in a more abstract manner. Am I right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I feel like the, you know, the question of abstraction in particular is really um, important to the work around glitch feminism because, uh, you know, I do feel that the understanding of what it is to abstract some of these concepts to better understand the body, to allow things to be perhaps more cosmic and limitless um, and difficult to, um, you know, pin down um, or define, right? That actually, while that, you know, can make for um, challenging work, I think as well, it is um, really necessary and urgent and important work because um, it provides us an opportunity to really um, see the fluidity within um, what our human selves can be and kind of to reach toward that as a kind of ultimate goal as we kind of continue to think through to the ways in which that can impact um, and drive our creative potential. So again, bringing artists, um, you know, into the fore here and allowing them to kind of show us what's possible. Mm-hmm. And, and can the, the contradictions of gender be overcome through uh, decolonization, representation, or uh, the, the way to do it is to adopt a, a post-gender feminist framework to mm-hmm. think to go beyond I mean, gender? I, I think I, I love that question, um, but I, I, you know, I think I struggle with the idea of um, kind of, uh, or perhaps a better way of putting it, I'm not convinced that decolonization representation should be put on the same plane. Um, kind of representation and visibility, uh, as I kind of turn them over, they feel consistently like a trap. We see a lot of times, um, you know, folks uh, accepting representation or visibility as being the thing that um, suggests that, that, you know, kind of race and gender are over, right? That we are kind of beyond some of that. And, you know, we see over and over again, that's just not real. So um, what decolonization for me um, means is like it requires a reworking altogether of the frameworks of equity. Um, Because, you know, uh, this notion of equity has for so long meted out ideas of fairness and equality in a way that supports, um, you know, a sort of anti-black, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, classist logic, right? Um, So, you know, who and what is fair and, you know, how to make those things um, uh, known is something that is a huge part of the problem. And, and, you know, still we are in a position where um, so much of what uh, is uh, being decided in terms of representation and visibility is being driven by non-black people and, um, you know, people who um, are, you know, sometimes allies within uh, these conversations often as well too, um, you know, sitting in positions of great privilege um, in making those decisions um, and making those decisions in rooms that do not have queer people in them, people in them. So I still think that, you know, when we think about um, ways of decolonizing um, and as well, um, you know, thinking about that through the lens of gender, but also through the lens of technology, it is too thinking about ways in which um, black people and queer people are not purely um, visible and represented, right? But that they are are active participants in the building of these uh, kind of technologies and futures as we envision them. Mm-hmm. Now let me take it to something else. Uh, one of the uh, of the parts of the book I loved uh, was uh, about the, the the idea of um, of encryption. How you take the story of encryption and uh, uh, the the story, yeah, the the practice of encryption, and you know you turn it on its head. <laughs> uh, so uh, most of our digital lives spend now on platforms, uh, and they are pushing more and more uh, to to take away this encryption. I mean, we we know that uh, in in contrary to the uh, contrary to the early days of the internet, 
we now have to use our real name most of the times in most of the platforms. Uh, we are geolocated often voluntarily even, but yeah, we know how algorithms work. Uh, now, how can you glitch on Facebook or Instagram when their architecture is aimed at, uh, at locking you down to usable uh, categorized data? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to call on a term um, by one of my favorite scholars, Andre D. Brock, who um, is the author of a book called Distributed Blackness. Um, Andre talks about this notion of an enclaved counterpublics, which basically, you know, are private spaces hidden in public view. And for me, the uh, work of glitch feminism, you know, is situated and occupies that space. So I'm thinking about artist Liberia Simmons um, over these past couple weeks um, during the coup. She did some brilliant work and intervention of posting screenshots of the media coverage on Instagram um, and, you know, with the hashtag of thug life, right? Because, you know, I think that, you know, within that, that, you know, as a kind of um, gentle intervention is really important. It helps us better understand that, like, these categorizations um, as they are created, right, actually perpetuate some of the most kind of virulently um, problematic frameworks, um, you know, in terms of how we see and what is and is not made visible, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or I'm thinking of American artist whose work is celebrated um, within the pages of glitch feminism who lives under an avatar like quite literally they you know have changed their name to American artist and had lived this life right both on and off uh, line um, as a means of of really um, kind of undermining and decolonizing, quite frankly, um, search engine optimizations. So when you search American artists now, whereas previously, you know, a whole list of white male artists would show up, what shows up is American artists and American artists scholarship and work, um, which, you know, it kind of as an entire framework really does, um, you know, push back at, um, you know, some of the, the really troubled logics of supremacy of digital culture and helps us as well situate race and gender within them. Um, um, you know, thinking through, you know, how those things may, might be dealt with, um, with greater care, um, you know, and then, you know, as well, I'm thinking about folks who have been shadow banned on Instagram. Um, these are artists and otherwise, right, who are very much aware that um, because of what they post that, um, you know, part of the algorithmic process of existing on these platforms, right, um, is, uh, you know, by nature doing a certain kind of tapering of audience right but that the public itself right that they are looking to speak to seek out and engage right um, is very specific and so actually using that as an opportunity of kind of pushing back at different ideas of economy and circulation um, and visuality so there's a lot of different um, you know examples of the ways in which um, this kind of encryption right can operate uh, within these kind of uh, questions of, of publics uh, you know another Kind of example that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, the space of Dub Smash and TikTok and, you know, Dub Smash being uh, a platform where there are a lot of um, non-white creators, many black folks who are doing work to kind of create um, different types of movement and, and um, kind of uh, sort of mimetic uh, material that, you know, then goes viral and, and the ongoing tension of um, what travels from Dub Smash to TikTok and then is co-opted by white or straight creators, um, you know, to 
kind of continue to profit from black, um, you know, and, and queer creative innovation. Um, you know, moments where uh, now there are these ongoing discussions about the ways in which that that can be um, done differently, right? So even in the simple act of um, black folks being uh, willing to have those discussions about how authorship can be cited um, as digital material moves super quickly, um, you know, thinking through the question not only of viewership and, you know, what who and what is something created for, what those audiences are, um, but as well the ways in which um, moments of visibility within that um, can be done uh, strategically as a kind of collective action or intervention, um, you know, on, on various platforms, be it TikTok, Dub Smash, or otherwise. Uh, and then, of course, I'm thinking about communities like Bias for Us or... Um, which is based here in New York or Pussy Palace um, in the UK um, or Gush or Babes London or Galdem or the publication The White Pube. Um, these are really rigorous and crit critical communities. Um, they feel like they've, you know, really risen out of a generation of the internet. They, like, put that, you know, language of the digital to really important use. And they actively engage with kind of critical discourse, community building um, online, but then create space away from the keyboard, you know, takes things out into the world so that people can kind of keep growing and collectivizing um, and doing kind of political organizing, um, you know, in physical space. So um, when, you know, we think about the ways in which, um, you know, we are uh, asked to kind of uh, be locked down or categorized or geolocated, um, I think that there are so many brilliant people, um, artists and otherwise, who are thinking very much strategically, consistently through their practice about the ways to circumnavigate that and to think through ways in which, you know, these kind of enclaved counterpublics um, can be deeply encrypted and kind of hidden in plain view, um, but still doing really uh, necessary work to manifest a different type of internet culture. <laughs> Now, you, you read at some point in your book that the internet continues to be a place of immense intimacy where an opening up of being can occur and where one can dare to be vulnerable. Uh, why is this not the case for AFK life? I mean, I, I think that actually I will push back a little bit at that question because I, I think it does um, rely very heavily on a kind of digital dualist uh, kind of, <laughs> uh, headspace. You know, it's it's not it's not the case that it's not possible in AFK life. Um, you know, I think there are many many moments of great intimacy um, that you know continue to be possible out in the world. But I I will say right that um, there are many people who feel um, deeply unsafe in physical space, right? And also many people who feel deeply unsafe, you know, online. But I will, you know, note that I think that the, the risks are different. Um, and so, you know, being able to talk about and navigate those risks feels like a really important part of this work, too. Um, you know, the, the questions of um, access and empowerment and privilege, um, you know, that come with being able to be out in the physical world um, and who is able to do that work and, um, you know, as well absorb that impact. Um, you know, and kind of take the risk in terms of potential harm to one's physical body. Um, you know, how that operates, I think, um, is a really important conversation um, to have and, and is one that, you know, I, I, I felt um, really encouraged by seeing it continue to unfold um, in my digital communities as, as, you know, as this, you know, march to present has unfolded and, you know, people have been 
kind of in, participating in direct action, um, you know, and kind of political organizing in lots of different um, channels, right, both on their screens and away from their screens. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the loop is is really important. It's a, it is a loop that is, you know, necessary. It's something that, you know, may begin on your screen and be taken away from your screen out into the world, or it may begin out in the world and then, you know, um, be housed within, uh, you know, a kind of machinic nature of some of these different platforms um, and spaces as they're created. Um, and that actually, that is the thing that feels um, really encouraging about this moment is that, you know, we are seeing intimacies um, traversing that loop and that, you know, folks are, I think, very much so invested in thinking about a way where um, a different type of care um, can be, uh, you know, kind of uh, manifested and fostered within the context of the digital, um, you know, and even still seeing examples both on and offline that are sort of deeply, um, you know, troubling. Um, and, you know, thinking of the coup of this past week here in the United <laughs> States, you know, like these moments where, um, you know, physical action has been driven by digital action, right? Um, but then still to the moments where um, folks are, I think, thinking through how that, you know, is taking place, the ways in which, um, you know, that work is being done and um, moments where um, different types of, of power um, can be uh, sort of traversed um, and um, interrogated in terms of, you know, who has access to what and why and, you know, the ways in which these technolo technologies um, work for or against us. Mm -hmm. I, I will ask this one last question because we're almost running out of time and uh, what mm -hmm. you just said leads us straight into it. Can you pick a few of these moments from this summer, from the, uh, from the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd that uh, you find uh, interesting or appealing from the view of uh, um, glitch feminism? You know, I actually, um, I feel like... Uh, I guess out of kind of respect for George Floyd and Nina Pop and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and there's so many more, right, who have had their lives stolen uh, due to state violence, I, I kind of don't feel interested in capitalizing on their death as a means of driving the thesis of this work. Um, you know, glitch feminism believes in the right to live, right, the right to be deemed human, the recognition of blackness and queerness, kind of not as a cultural capital, but as a community. And so actually, instead of focusing on, um, you know, the, the kind of sort of ways in which um, this can be um, uh, kind of layered into the text because the text I think um, does different things for different folks. I you know, do want to note that the book begins with an epigraph um, and the epigraph reads, oh dear one we've lost, but who lives on online for you, we write your name here and occupy this space, say their name. So um, this is, you know, for me, within the book an opportunity to hold space first and foremost because so many black lives and queer lives trans lives have been lost and it's the memory of the internet that in many ways allows them to continue to be celebrated in the wake of their deaths um you know for the lives that they live that definitely keep mattering and even you know when their physical bodies are no longer with us we're working to center so you know across the summer from march to present i think that you know i uh, a kind of moment um within that has been, you know, recognizing that folks have become heavily um, engaged with the digital, um, thinking very much so about its impact and that, you know, that 
this has come out of a product of some of these losses, right? Losses of life. Um, and, you know, that for that, that's a great gift to all of us, right? To be able to think through, you know, what is our responsibility um, as we move forward in, in um, using these spaces and thinking through the ways in which we can honor um, the life within them. And on that note, Legacy Russell, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you for having me.